When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I am the editor of the TLS. Bonjour, ciao, hola. <laughs> How about, get them in order? Oh, well, none of them are good, are they? Uh, I was saying hello to you, Theo, in a variety <laughs> of European languages. You were. Ciao is how you say hello. That is just, how, well, and goodbye. Yeah, that's weird. Is that weird? Well, Context I don't know, is, is it? Well, I don't know. <laughs> You're never going to be confused, are you? Well, I think I also, exactly, and, and in Italy it would certainly be accompanied by some kind of gesture that would make the, the difference. You know, you'd, 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 you'd figure it out. I don't you'd think you'd be in, in any doubt as to... <laughs> Am I coming or I going? I don't know what to do. Alf News... Uh, oh gosh, he was off the lead for the first time oh, yesterday. Yeah, it was a big moment. He came back. He came back. He came back. He was so stoked. He was yeah. yeah he was thrilled. Were you stoked? I was stoked, especially when he came back. Yeah, that's the big. <laughs> Until test, then, I was I was yeah very Hurrah. anxious. Hurrah! Uh, <laughs> this week is a European special of the TLS. We record this just a couple of days before Brexit Day, the 29th of March, a day commemorating independence from the bureaucratic botherers from Brussels. <laughs> in one perspective, or a further turning inward of little England from another. Actually, the process has been such a farce from beginning to end that we're not actually leaving on Friday and we don't know what we're doing instead. So we thought, why not talk about art, culture and ideas instead? Coming up, David Roby will tell us about a writer from Italy, part of the canon there, who is not well known over here, Emilio Salgari. Very good. Thank you. Thea will be handling <laughs> pronunciation on behalf of the whole team. You'll be pleased to hear. Say Salgari, Thea. I, I would say it exactly as you did. Yeah, no, you wouldn't, because you'd, you'd have that little exuberant flick, Salgari, you'd <laughs> wouldn't you? Say well, it. we'll just have to keep listening and, okay, and then we'll find out. You do say it, yeah. Richard Forty has been reading a natural history of the continent of Europe. So we're looking not only at modern political troubles, or not even at modern political troubles, we're going for the geological distance of some 65 million years. We'll see if that gives us some perspective. And we'll be talking to the TLS cartoonist Ella Barron, a rising star of the art world, who's done the cover this week and a cartoon inside. How does she do it? We will find out. Europe is always at a crossroads, says Richard Forty in this week's TLS. And like many commentators, he's talking geologically and geographically, not politically. 
Forty, who once wrote a splendid book called Life and an Authorised Biography, has reviewed a book by Tim Flannery called Europe, A Cultural History, which he describes as an energetic sprint through more than 65 million years of complex biological history. This is an account of a perpetual tectonic ballet, Africa's restless movement shifting and shaping the European continent. Flannery describes all this in some 350 pages. Richard Forty does it in some 2,000 words, and we'll try and do it justice in the next 15 minutes or so. Richard Forty's in the studio with us to make it all happen. Richard, hello. Hello. So, should we start 65 million years ago? Actually, do we need to go a bit further back? 175 million years ago, and this is the supercontinent Pangaea breaking up. Yes, I guess if people were asked one geological fact they know, they would know that all the continents were once united together in one great supercontinent Pangaea the southern part of that often being known as Gondwana oh I didn't know that and that supercontinent broke up because of the appearance of the modern oceans so the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean well particularly the Atlantic Ocean started as a mere sliver and then the Americas broke off drifted no that's the wrong word it's we used to talk about continental drift it's a more active process than that because as they drifted apart, the mid-ocean ridges created new ocean crust. So it's much, it's, it's much more dynamic a thing than, a, than it's drifting much more, implies. Yeah, drifting implies you're a cork floating on the bath, doesn't it? But this yeah. is much more dynamic than that. It's driven by the Earth engine, the, the business going inside the centre of the Earth. And you call it, at one point, remorseless shoving of Africa. So this is the idea of sort of rumpling, almost rumpling the carpet. It's very much like that because one of the... It, consequences of this movement it wasn't just a simple passive splitting apart but was a northwards movement of Africa which was influential over tens of millions of years ultimately that pushed up what we now call the Alps before that there were pre-Alps and the effects of that are spread all the way across the continent of Europe and of course animals and plants are in a sense tectonic passengers so they're going to move at the behest of rising islands, sinking continents, and so on. So Flannery is rather good at weaving in the tale of, uh, of the tectonics and uh, what happens to organic evolution as a result of that. And how are we supposed to think of this? Because I've read books which talk about these forces happening over tens of millions of years. Is it even possible to conceive of how that would be perceived by an animal living at any one point in that process? Is it sort of violent activity or is it completely unseen activity? Is, it, is that knowable? It's a very good question, of course, but, uh, I mean, the continuous motion is unseen and you wouldn't feel it. You wouldn't say, goodness me, we've just moved another centimetre. <laughs> yeah. But, of course, where this, th- this sort of thing happens, you get tectonically active zones, so you get things like major earthquake zones. One block sliding past another, it's still happening in Turkey, of course. Yeah. And then you'll get ocean basins, which are at one time opened up and at other times closed. The Mediterranean was preceded by a vast ocean called the Tethys, even one before that, that snaked all the way across through Europe and over to the far east, through the Himalayas, where the Himalayas is now, and eventually down into uh, Southeast Asia. That was so one, we big, were, one big ocean. It was one big ocean full of life. The organisms are at the mercy, really, of what's going on tectonically, but it happens very slowly, which gives things time to migrate and uh, move in from one area to another. Flannery's previous books, as you probably know, were about Australia, which has been a thing unto itself for a long time. Yeah, uh, which is it, why it has such a sort of... Um, distinct. Distinct. Curious endemics yeah. are part of the Australian story. Or he dealt with North America, which at 
upon time was quite isolated until the Bering Strait passage opened up and animals, and including us, could stream in across through the Arctic. But those were really sort of capsules. They were much more continuous entities than yeah. Europe. Europe has always been something of a crossroads, something of a patchwork. So during the process of this tectonic shoving, there were times when there were lots of scattered islands, and there were other times when Europe was much more coherent. And when there are scattered islands, you have an animal who lives on an island, perhaps safely because of the habitat, and then the island gets crumpled into a larger landmass and other animals live there, and that that might drive evolution or it might drive extinction. That's absolutely precisely put. I mean, there's an example I love, which he talks about, is what is currently the peninsula of Gargano, which is, you know, the Healy bit of Italy. <laughs> and the, <laughs> the heel used to be very far removed from the boot. One could almost call it a microcontinent. And really? there were things stranded on it, which means you get this wonderful spectacle of the giant hedgehog of Gargano, which grew very big. That's, that's uh, why I'm smiling so much. Have you so heard much. of the giant hedgehog of Gugano? <laughs> that's why I'm yeah. smiling so much, because as I was reading your piece, uh, and I'm too embarrassed to show you the print-off that I have here, but I just went through underlining all of these fantastic-sounding animals, and when I got to the, the Gargano part, I was just like, enormous hedgehog. The giant hedgehog. <laughs> and the largest owl ever known to have existed. A huge owl, yes. Because on islands, normal evolutionary rules are, in a sense, suspended. Strange things happen. One of the things that happen is that things get very big, like the hedgehog, where I think there's a giant vole somewhere, which particularly amuses me. Uh, the other thing that happens is that things get very small. The elephant family, which, as you know, at one time had a global distribution, at one time went onto Gargano and other Mediterranean islands, including Crete, and there was one there that became smaller and smaller till, well, it says it was as small as a, a large dog. And, did and that they have discovered the skull and they thought it was, that's, that's the kind of the foundation for their, the, the myth of the Cyclops. That is what at least one, exp, one popular explanation yeah. is. I like that. That the early <laughs> mariners would come across the skulls of these things, they probably would. They'd see where the trunk goes in, that's a great mm. cavity. Ah. So what else could it be but a, Must a be. very, very large median eye? <laughs> A cyclops. It's like that story, though, that people felt that manatees were mermaids. And then yeah. The sailors were, and then when you see a manatee, you think you'd have to be on a boat for a very, very long time before you could start confusing <laughs> or a manatee. In a, or in the fog. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, quite, that's very slightly plausible. <laughs> the Gargano Peninsula eventually married the boot of Italy. The whole boot of Italy, of course, swung round to its present position from a different position as the Mediterranean was squeezed and twisted. It's almost impossible um, to, to picture this, isn't it? What you've got to get a hold of is the vastness of geological time. And we're only talking here, we're not talking about deep history. What's time. deep history going on? What, well, I work on things that say, f uh, scientifically, uh, that are more than 300 million years old. Yeah. So for me, this is all the overburden. Just the other day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but very dramatic things happened, particularly around the Mediterranean. Most people probably don't know that there was a time when the Straits of Gibraltar were sealed off. And then the Mediterranean became effectively a giant evaporating basin, which meant that water came off yeah. and the salts got stronger and stronger and then started to crystallise out. And what's the effect of that? Is that, is that? If you put a borehole down under the Mediterranean Sea, you come across huge salt layers with rarer minerals too, but mostly salt, for the so-called Mycenaean salinity crisis. And Flannery describes what must have happened at the breaching of the Strait of Gibraltar the sea pouring in, probably over a few thousand years, has 
the greatest waterfall, I guess, the world has ever seen. Incredible. And, and there was another one that I, reason I mentioned the Dardanelles briefly was that a similar thing was supposed to have happened to the Black Sea. And that would have affected, the as it got more salty, that would affect what animals survive and how they adapt. Absolutely it would. And, of course, it also served as an isolating, another isolating mechanism so that strange animals could evolve on other Mediterranean islands, Malta and so on. It's a shame. I mean, I say, I think, in my review somewhere, what a pity just one of these didn't yeah, survive. Wouldn't absolutely. it be great to go and yeah. pet an elephant? You know? It would. And it could have survived if the, if the island had could maintain it is that possible it's an, it's an interesting idea this particularly in the context of the extinctions we worry about at the moment mm. i mean it is worth saying that extinction has always happened these interesting animals on islands what was the old dad's army phrase we're all doomed <laughs> yeah. they were in a sense going to be doomed yeah. once they'd made a connection with the mainland there are very few examples I was trawling my mind to think if I could think of one, where an, an organisms evolved on a small island has gone on to the mainland, as it were, and conquered all. It's because they're almost sheltered in an island. and then Yeah, they've that... evolved in isolation. Some classic examples are still with us. For example, on Mallorca, there is a toad, a midwife toad. Its relatives in Spain and so on are very unpleasantly poisonous. But it's a, it's a metabolic cost to make poison. So if you don't have to do it... Mm you lose the capacity. So you become a very edible snack when the first snake moves in, <laughs> as opposed to your relatives, which still taste very nasty. Yeah, so, so, so it's evolved away from the poison. Well, um, currently we have, it's not Europe, and off the subject really, but we have huge numbers of endemic species in Hawaii. That's a thing that was seeded, popping up in the middle of the ocean. Most of those are probably long-term destined for extinction. Nothing to do with mankind. Uh, well, it is, because we brought our own species oh, we'll there. Hasten, we'll and hasten it, yeah. The flightless birds have been done in by the rats that we brought, and the things that weren't done in by that were brought in by the mongoose we brought in to kill the rats. So, yes, we have a lot of responsibility. So, it comes so it's going to happen. Well, let's, yeah. we should mention human beings then. So, Europe was a battlefield, if that's not too strong a phrase, between Homo sapiens and, and Neanderthal yes, man. Yes, very interesting. This story is always changing. I'm old enough to remember when Neanderthal man was just uh, regarded as a sort of cold climate race of human beings. can't be said enough that the Neanderthal's, Neanderthal's brains were as big or even bigger than ours. Yeah. So they were not stupid. And there was some interbreeding. And now we know, thanks to the wonders of modern DNA technology, that we exchanged genes with Neanderthals. Flannery, I think, opts for the line that what... Homo sapiens got from Homo neanderthalensis was some ability to cope with climatic extremes and perhaps dietary constraints and so on that the Neanderthals had had hundreds of thousands of years to perfect. To put it terribly teleologically, we said thank you very much and then proceeded to exterminate them. And is that uh, known? Is that known that there was a sort of... I mean, is it wrong to think about these things in terms of genocide or...? Yeah, it's... Uh, we, I, I don't think... And certainly he doesn't report it. There's such a thing as you know, a Bosnian mass grave. It's much more likely that the as the climate ameliorated and the Andertals really were adapted to a particular mode of life that became rarer. And the rather more adaptive Homo sapiens had a richer range of tools and procedures and so on. It took some time and uh, the two species, if that's what they are, were uh, shuffling along quite happily side by side for a long time. That's so interesting. Oh, and then, of course, we have some jokers in the pack 
we always think anthropologists are guilty as this of anybody. We always think we know it all, yeah. and then three weeks later, a new fossil is discovered, which throws it all back into the melting pot. The particular one this time being the, the Denisovians, which have a very, very different genome, which are known from I think one cave uh, in the so Far East. So what were they? They were hominids, humans, yeah. quite closely related to us, and it's been shown that uh, at least the Aboriginals, Australian Aboriginals, have quite a dash of Denisovian in their genome as well. So, uh, but we know all we know from the Denisovian is one, I think it's one limb bone and a tooth. But the DNA is extraordinarily well preserved. It's in a very very dry cave. So the genome of this tiny, poorly known human yeah. is actually known much more than the body. Tiny in stature. No, no, or tiny sorry. as in there tiny are very remains. many of them. Oh, yeah. tiny remains. Tiny remains. Yeah, with a tooth and a bone. You're thinking of the little, the little <laughs> elephant <laughs> of Cyprus. Yeah, the little elephant, or the little hobbit, of course, of the the little man Homo floresiensis that was found on oh, yeah. one of the Indonesian islands. Is there a story? There's a narrative that wherever Homo sapiens is, there's always destruction and there is always an incompatibility with others and a bringing about of a of a dominance of a landscape that is ultimately deleterious to that landscape. Yes. Is, that, is that the narrative? <laughs> I was going to say, I think I know the answer to yeah, that. Well, <laughs> well, no, I mean, you put it very well. There's been a long debate, certainly running back more than 20 years, of, you might say, climate, climate versus humans. Were the extinctions of the so-called megafauna, many of which Flannery documents here, elephant species, cave lions and so on, was that the result of climate change or was it homo sapiens ourselves the modern form coming in with sophisticated tools and basically finishing them off and what do you think he is very much uh, i think a human culprit champion i would think this is, sounds very sdp but uh, i would think if you had a climate change which reduced the population of a megafauna then they would be more vulnerable to extinction yeah. mm. and humans being smarty pants would probably butcher the last one quite happily and eat it and of course the tragedy um, now is that we caused the climate change so as then that would have been well now it's bringing it full circle because the one habitat that really survived with all the megafauna in africa is now one that's very very much beginning to be under threat i mean you look around the world you say where is where can we go and it's pristine there are very few places some parts of amazonia and, and the congo and uh, in, in africa particularly Almost everywhere else. I mean, including Australia, if Flanner's right about the burning that yeah. early ha Homo sapiens did when he got there. I saw a, a, a show about an uninhabited desert island in the Pacific. No one lived there. No one had ever lived there. And they landed on it and the beach was just filled with plastic. Mm. Oh, yeah. The plastic the plastic is the latest thing we've done. Really. Yeah. Mm. I'm glad to say it does seem to have suddenly become a very popular mm. issue. Yeah. issue. So are you optimistic then? We should probably have to finish there, sadly, but you look at things from a proper sense of geological perspective, deep time. Are you... Am I optimistic well, about the humans, yeah. about human survival or climate change or what? Human survival <laughs> uh, within a, an environment that is not going to be destroyed by the humans. Well, the, what is the elephant in the room in all of these discussions? It's, it's the numbers of humans. Yeah. It's still not talked about. I don't know of any political party, certainly in Europe that has population control as an important item. And I think while human numbers increase, then the demands on the environment won't slacken off. And we'll finish up, if we're lucky, with magnificent wild species and kind of extended game parks mm. with a population way times lower than it would be in a state of nature. But you can't have it always. You can't have these vast numbers of humans. And 
a fully functioning wild ecosystem involving megafauna. Which is kind of depressing. Well, we, no... I mean, we had, even in the UK, we had, it's not that long ago that we had cave lions and hyenas and a much more varied fauna. Yeah. Didn't the last wolf die out here in the 1600s? Oh, yeah, the, this yeah. goes into, hist- into history. We're not, we're not just talking prehistory mm. here. The ancestor of the modern cow, I'm sure that Flannery goes into this, is the aurochs. Yeah, do, yeah. In, in Poland. Um, they, uh, and yeah. the last few were in Poland uh, in a very unpronounceable area. They would have been Shakespeare, had he had a wish, mm. could have gone to see the last aurochs, but it would have been the last well, and then the, the Nazis tried uh, to bring them back, didn't they? The Nazis tried it by traditional breeding, and they b- produced quite a good simulacrum of the aurochs. The only problem is it was half size. <laughs> <laughs> it's the but, theme. It's the becoming the theme of this. <laughs> the, the size they of a small quite, elephant. Type size of, of a small elephant. <laughs> <laughs> I think now there's, uh, and more perhaps more possible would be using a DNA technique mm. on if they've got well-preserved aurochs DNA, which they probably have somewhere in bones and. Mm. skins and so on uh, and they might just be able to produce a surrogate mm. mum. Well we're heading into tabloid territory here because I do remember seeing uh, a news splash a few years ago about an American farmer who had Nazi cows <laughs> and there was this photo <laughs> of these massive muscular angry cows. They were massive they weren't There's tiny. There's nothing worse than a Nazi cow <laughs> we, we, we should leave it there before disastrously <laughs> off topic. Yeah. Richard Forty, what a great pleasure it is to talk to you. Thank pleasure. you so much for coming in deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. These days, billing someone as the Italian rider Haggard might not be a surefire way to secure for them a wide new readership. But in the case of the late 19th century writer Emilio Salgari, there's no getting around the comparison – Readers of his many adventure romances, in his relatively brief life he produced some 200 works, among them 80 novels, can expect whirlwinds of intrigue and exploit set in exotic lands to rival those of Haggard. The books are teeming with rebels, pirates and princes generally chasing love, vengeance or, more often than not, both. 
In Italy, of course, he needs no if-you-like-this style introduction. In terms of book sales, he's thought to be up there with Dante, which is definitely not to say that his legacy is unproblematic. But if you're already clearing a spot somewhere alongside Jules Verne, you'll be disappointed to hear that very few of Salgari's novels have been translated into English. Might a Vast New Life of Salgari by Anne Lawson Lucas, reviewed for us this week by David Roby, be about to change that? Should it? Here to help us decide is David Roby. Hi. Hello. Um, before we work back to Salgari's own time, perhaps you could give us a sense of his place in contemporary Italian culture. I'm pretty sure I remember getting versions of his stories as comics from the newsagent when I was growing up. Is he still popular? I don't think so much now, although it's quite interesting to see that uh, you still have to pay to read his books on Kindle, which is a sign that um, he's still fairly viable. So people are still prepared to to pay to read him. But I think it is a kind of generational thing. The person who was a a great enthusiast for Salgari was Umberto Eco, Mm -hmm. who wrote about uh, reading him when he was young. Eco was at school in in the 40s. And he said in the 40s that they all absolutely loved Salgari, which is interesting because he is in many ways quite antiquated. Is, is he unsophisticated? Because the comparison that you give of, of Ryder Haggard takes us down the road of sort of Conan Doyle lost world. Is he kind of unsophisticated and straightforward? Because even, even Thea's little pricey there, it, it sounds very straightforward and uh, unreflective. It is. In many ways, it's not as good as, as Conan Doyle and Ryder Haggard. Both of them are, are very good on, on the local colour. It's all very well documented. In Salgari's case, he wrote about practically every quarter of the globe and had never been anywhere. I he never f- actually left northern Italy. Yeah, the furthest, the furthest he went was a train to somewhere only about an hour away or something. And then he went straight back home. He made it as far as Genoa. But, uh, <laughs> and he also allowed people to believe that he was a sea captain. He'd been a sea cadet, but I don't think he even went to sea then. There was a case, wasn't there, because he, he published his Capitan Salgari, as you said, and, and he, he was sort of ridiculed for it at the time, wasn't he? I think at the time they, they, they bought it, but I think <laughs> after his death people started to ask questions about it. He never actually himself claimed the title, but he allowed other people to call him, to call him Captain. <laughs> the initial temptation, though, I mean, it might be to focus more on the work than because it's so colourful and and fun than on the, the life itself. But um, what, what do we learn from this? Because this? it's a huge undertaking. I think this is, this is only a couple of the volumes, but there, there are two it's more to come. four volumes, yes. It centres very much on, on, on the publication history and the reception of Salgari, really because there isn't all that much to say about his life. There isn't much documentation about his life. The uh, suspicions of alcoholism and, and gambling addiction. He had a hard time with a wife who had psychiatric problems. And eventually, he spectacularly committed suicide by Hara Curry. But um, on the whole, there isn't very much evidence about his life because he didn't really do very much other than write. In fact, he wrote so much, he probably didn't have time to do anything very much else. It's one of the great issues with writers' biographies, isn't it? Because often being a writer means sitting by yourself at a desk. So why do this in four volumes? Is there, there must be a, is there a, a demand for this, to, to go into this level of detail about, about this life? Well, I think there must be a demand because it is published by an extremely reputable Italian publisher, Olski, and it's the most magnificent um, set of volumes with fantastic illustrations. And I think the justification really is is that Salgari is such an important part of Italian cultural history from the late 19th century onwards and, and well into the middle of the 20th century as, 
Umberto Eco testifies. And that, of course, is what justifies the focus on his reception rather than on his life. And why is that? Why is he so culturally central? Well, there wasn't a lot in the way of competition, I think. Italians had quite a lot of trouble writing popular literature. And that actually shows itself um, in many ways in Salgari's way of writing, which is uh, really surprisingly literary, uh, very hyperbolic, and quite antiquated in its style. But that was the way an awful lot of Italian, even popular literature, was until around the middle of the, of, of the 20th century. But also, I think, because the things that in a way seemed to be his failing, the hyperbole, the rhetoric, the rather literary style, were things that probably attracted Italian readers. And he does fit into a sort of national agenda for cultural renewal. And this becomes obviously particularly interesting once we get to the fascist period, and, and that yeah. gets its own, its own volume in, in, this, um, yeah. in this story. And that's interesting, because I think it is a whole strand of um, cultural history under fascism that's brought out here. I think that's probably the main interest of the volume. Did the fascists like him? Was he, was he offering a, a, nar- a national narrative that, was, that, that got fascist critics excited? He's answering a national narrative that goes back a bit further that really came to the fore under fascism, which is the need for a sort of moral renewal of the Italian people after unification to make up for all the centuries' decline. And there was a strong feeling from unification onwards, first of all, that unification wasn't going tremendously well because a lot of Italians didn't particularly like being unified. And that as a result, they really needed to develop more civic and also um, military qualities which they had lacked then in the past. Salgari is writing at a time when people are thinking very much in terms of Italians needing to prove themselves on the international stage, which um, very interestingly then leads up to a very strong interventionist program for Italy to go into the First World War, simply because it would be good for Italians to learn to shed blood. (laughs) Um, And then, of course, then continued under fascism with fascism also wanting to morally renew the civic qualities of, of the Italian people. So he answers to that agenda in quite a big way, although he himself was not particularly right-wing. Well, indeed, so he, he was really, I mean, and we should say he was dead by the, by the time um, fascism came on the scene, really, but he was at odds with the regime, in that, especially in terms of colonial expansion, because his politics yes, and his books right. are, are, you know, they're not like Ryder Haggard. They're different. He, he, he clearly had a message against colonialism. Yes, I think that's a good comparison because, I mean, Ryder Haggard is a, a great um, poet of colonialism, isn't he? Yeah. And Salgari was not. And, and Salgari indeed writes about the underdogs of colonialism, uh, the two main cycles being about pirate families. Lot of uh, resentment against the, the British, for instance. Mm, well, Sandokan, the the pirate prince, he was a prince turned yeah. pirate, wasn't he? And he, um, that's right. His family was murdered by the British, and that was his his vengeance was was directed at the British Empire. Uh, the British are very um, unfavourably portrayed. Wow! Thank, thank goodness that doesn't happen now in in popular <laughs> in, in, in popular culture. Um, he never found critical success, did he? Uh, uh, he still hasn't. Do we know in his own lifetime whether this frustrated him or is there, is there any kind of movement to recognise him critically or is it very much just as a product of, of his time as a kind of a pulp figure? I think the latter really. I mean, the whole thing is exacerbated in the case of Italy by the fact that um, literature tended to be um, something of an elevated and closed world 
right, really, throughout the fascist period and into um, the post-war. Italians always actually were rather dubious about the novel as, a, as an art form until the middle of the 20th century. Really? Privileged poetry above all else. Well, I had a hard time taking off in Italy, partly because of the language problem, that um, people didn't speak Italian, people spoke dialect. Mm. And so representing everyday life in Italian was quite difficult because you had to draw in a language oh, which um, was really a literary one, not, not not a language of everyday usage. Well, who is an early canonical novelist then for, for Italy? Who's sort of, I don't want to sort of say... Well, the, the main, the most famous Italian novelist of the 19th century was, was Manzoni, the Promessi Sposi, the, the Betrothed, which is in many ways an extremely good novel set in the 17th century. But um, it does rather illustrate the point that I've made, that mm. um, it is written in, in, in a very elevated um, literary style that goes back for centuries. Uh, Manson has struggled all his life to um, find the right language to narrate everyday events in. Mm. And never really managed to escape from the limitations of the literary language. It was only at the end of the, the 19th century that people began to try and write in a language that's closer to that of everyday life. I find these pieces like this, David, fascinating because... because if you're not from Italy, you, you, it's very easy to be completely unfamiliar with a country's canon. You know, there's occasionally writers who burst out globally and then they become part of the, the global canon who, with whom everyone's familiar. But there are these figures like Salgari who presumably everyone in Italy, if I walked up, to, you know, if I was walking down the street of Rome and bumped into someone and said Emilio Salgari, people would know who I was talking about. And yet if I did the Maybe same thing in London, I wouldn't, no, one had, no one would have a clue. That's right, and maybe um, less nowadays in Italy, but if you've been walking down the street in Rome 30 years ago, that probably has applied. I do think that um, Ryder Haggard and Conan Doyle do in many ways seem more modern than Salgari. Salgari is, is a bit of a period piece, and what's in a way interesting and surprising is that despite being such a period piece, people continue to, continue to read him. He was slightly more modern, on a final point, in his defence. <laughs> he was slightly more modern, perhaps, in his portrayal of women than the other writers. Yes, is a strong and resourceful, independent and, of course, always beautiful women characters. I wonder, I wonder, I mean, because this, this life that we're discussing by Anne Lu- uh, Lawson Lucas, it's, it's in Italian, obviously. I wonder, I can't imagine it will be translated into English. And I, I mean, I can't imagine the works finding a translator into English now. Well, I mean, got, some of them already exist. But, but you two, I mean, even now talking about this, I don't get a sense that I should, you know, if there was a translation of one of these books, I should go out and read it. Do you, is that fair? Oh, well, I, I can imagine the young reader, you know, you, the, the reader you describe yourself as having been when you were younger, Stig, maybe. I could imagine getting into these kind of, you know, swashbuckling. I love genre fiction. I mean, things. I, is this, so it's a good question. Is this, is this a good example of historical genre fiction that is worth persevering with, or does it not quite hit that mark, do you think? I think he's a peculiar case. You can read, certainly read Ryder Haggard and Conan Doyle, and, it doesn't, and John Buckham. That doesn't seem all that out of date, does it? You're no. making due allowances. But Salgari, there's the antiquated character of the language and the very um, exaggerated rhetoric is something quite mm. peculiar, I think, to, to, to Italy. And mm. that, that, that's a real limitation. I think that's why he was never... I don't think he was ever translated into English. It would read rather oddly in English. Mm. Well, I'm really pleased to have spoken to you about this and to have read it, David, because it's a, it's a figure that I'd had, had impacted on me not one bit, and now I feel I know a little about him. David, thank you so much for, for explaining well, it all. Can I just add one more thing, which is I haven't done a great job in defence of Salgari, <laughs> but 
I think the, the thing is, he is a very, very interesting cultural figure. I, I think it's a bit difficult to say, well, should I read him now? I think there are a lot of better things to read in Italian now. But in terms of cultural history, he's a very interesting figure. Yeah, exactly. And that's fine. And that's, that's why this book is so important. Yeah, mm. that's it. David Ruby, thank you very much indeed. It's a good distinction, though, isn't it, between Dumas and Conan Doyle? Because I would still, you know, as you know, the type of reader that I am, I would still read them, but I shouldn't do this. Well, you want to, I think, you, it, I you think it's exactly... Him. You want to defend it. Well, no, I don't, it's, it, it's not my genre, but I think exactly what, what David Roby said there, he's so much a product, he's so kind of bound up with Italy and kind of the history of his reception is the history to, of Italy and that's really interesting. But if he's not fun to read, if he's writing these... these I think he is fun to, to read. I think I did... I, his comics... I mean, his, he, they weren't his comics, but yeah. they were comic adaptations of, of his novels and I know I really enjoyed those because you do when you're that age. You know, it's all the kind of the Treasure Island style... I love that stuff. ...stuff, which was great fun. Yeah, so it is fun. It is fun. Yeah, I think it is fun. I mean, I should return to the books before I <laughs> before okay, I confirm come, that for come sure. Back but... in a mo- come back in a month's <laughs> time. Do you know how I'll find that? And do a thumbs up or thumbs down on Amelia's. <laughs> Go ferreting through my mum and dad's garage yeah. and the old boxes that they've been trying to get me to clear out for exactly, <laughs> the past exactly. 20 years. Watch this space. <laughs> If you are a regular reader of the TLS, and you should be, I mention subscriptions so often on this program. In fact, if you're not a subscriber, do Google subscriptions now and get involved. We'll all wait here while you do that. Anyway, now you are a regular reader of the TLS, you'll have noticed over the last couple of years the presence of Ella Barron, our cartoonist. I say cartoonist, but that doesn't seem to do justice to some of the elegant, complex and beautiful drawings she does for us. Last week, over a full page, she drew a history of dreams in literature, from Chaucer to Kafka, Shakespeare to Lewis Carroll. This week, she's drawn our European cover, a map of Europe rendered as a painter's palette, which is a detail from a cartoon she's also done inside called Red Lines. It shows Britannia, a woman who looks suspiciously like Theresa May, trying to draw a self-portrait and failing miserably. What could it mean? We thought we'd have a chat with Ella about her art ahead of an exhibition she's holding at Christie's in London next month. Ella, hello. Hi. Before we talk about this particular cover, we don't give you an easy time, do we? It's a nice challenge. A nice challenge is a very... Yeah, but it's not an easy brief, because basically we say to you, sometimes we tell you we'd like this, but generally you have to come up with ideas that are a bit literary a bit cultural yeah. and you can turn them into a picture. Yeah, yeah. How do you approach that? Well, I guess the, the worst way is to sit in front of a blank email the day when I'm meant to pitch <laughs> and look hopeful. Um, do, you have, do you do that sometimes? Well, I, I've, hopefully not. <laughs> but I think what really works is most of my ideas come from quotes or like things that I've read. And generally, whilst I'm drawing, I listen to things. So audiobooks or podcasts or talk shows or TED Talks. And like I can get through like... 10 hours of audio in a day like quite easily really? so then I'm just like filtering it for ideas that might work at the same time do you have a commonplace book so if, if that's what says, I was about to yeah. ask just constantly are you constantly noting down yeah right I add them to my notes but I, they're not that frequent that I'm going to forget them <laughs> it's more like yes this will work for next week so it's ideas that are as you say like topical literary, literary and intellectual but that are either already visual or I can think of a visual metaphor for and there aren't many of them so do you sometimes think oh God, I don't know what, 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 the hell, what, what the hell to do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but... It works out in the end, doesn't it? Do you then yeah. take yourself for a walk? and, and... Yeah, yeah. The, the worst thing is to try and think about it. Like, when I have to think of an idea, it's not going to be as good as if you like, sort of 
just let ideas kind of float around hopefully yeah. and that sounds terribly floaty it's not it's just it's quite hard to chase something down whereas it's much easier to think to come across something and think that will really work do you have a favorite that you've done where that's happened where it's been a the process has been a kind of a nightmare no oh. <laughs> let's do a happy one and a nightmare best, best um, one worst one Oh, well, I, very early on, I did one of somebody reading on the tube. It was kind of Old Man and the Sea themed, and there was kind of I the, the marlin yeah. just, like, spelled out of the... And that was literally... I couldn't think of an idea, and then I got on the tube, and I was like, oh, let's do something. So sometimes that happens, like, the, the, the re- like just going for a walk. That well, why would that really connect with Old Man and the Sea? Because I thought, well, I don't know, just the escapism of being somewhere com- not underground, and I don't know, just, it just and you get the whole hu- the huge movement of the Merlin, kind of, yeah. and the thrashing of the sea, and maybe that of... goes with the train moving as well, yeah, but just in a different different framework. Maybe. So is that a good? Is that a good? Is that a happy or nightmare? Oh, I don't, I don't know. That's quite clear cut polarizing between a happy and bad. Yeah. That was just an, an example of a process which turned out well. Is there any that you found particularly hard to Draw. bring together? Compositions is sometimes because the thing is with drawing for the paper like there are hard lines which I can't which I can't change which are the dimensions of the page the, the, the frame that I'm given which is you know 13 by 18 centimeters and the time I have to do it in so often there are compositions that will be just much more comfortable in a completely different space and I have to somehow force them into this unnatural portrait thing and I think in a way it's actually thinking about it most cartoons are landscape and that actually gives you a different image because you you do like a comic you do progression horizontally mm. where things develop whereas because mine have always been portrait I have to do depth it wasn't a deliberate choice but if I look at my drawings I can see that like I've learned how to tell a story like that way it's less like a linear argument where things follow naturally it's more like a complex telescopic yeah Mm. okay let's talk about this week's cover which is magnificent it's for our European culture special to commemorate Brexit March the 29th, although Brexit might not Independence happen. Independence Day. Yeah, it's not actually going to happen, is it? No. Well, it's well, not happening on the 29th. Well, yeah. It will happen, I think, but it, it won't happen on the 29th. Struggle March. across. Some sort of line. Mm. Um, tell us, wh- where did that idea come from? So it's again the the visual metaphor thing. Like if we're trying to think of something that is about cultural diversity or opportunities within Europe and sort of free flow of ideas, and the idea of like paint mixing seemed like a good way to represent that. That cover came from the cartoon. Actually, the cartoon came first in my mind. So tell us about the cartoon. So the cartoon was I was thinking about trying to think of a, again a, like a visual metaphor for Brexit, which hasn't been done a million times in terms of breaking stars, and it was had a, like an artistic cultural angle, which is what would work for the TLS and so I thought about like a drawing a self-portrait as like the idea of like us redefining like Britain redefining or redesigning or re-representing themselves like but themselves doing it so that was the idea and then I also thought about like you know the phrase that keeps coming about red lines like Theresa May's red lines and the thing about so red lines self-portraits and palettes all work within the same kind of extended metaphor almost of artistic drawing then I thought that that becomes a cartoon because when you have like the, the individual visual metaphors are the concepts and then the composition is like how you make an argument or a point. So like how you arrange them on the page, how they interact with each other. And because those things can be put in the same kind of allegory framework of like drawing, Theresa May drawing something or Britannia drawing something, then it became a cartoon. But then that is a cartoon, not a cover, as you told me when I pitched it. Um, well, cause I, I, I have a very simplistic mentality, at the, as you know. Which is correct for uh, a cover. But so the idea was that to, to Ella sort of talked about this very complicated, rather useful <laughs> idea. And then, the, then, but for a cover, we thought you could do a bit from it, which is the palette mixing, which is a very straightforward metaphor. Yeah. Because the problem with covers rather than cartoons, cartoons can be dense and telescopes, as you say, but mm. covers really have to just be... Make a point sharp and quick. One thing yeah. with a headline. You have to think about it in, in those terms, which is slightly different. 
different, isn't it? So slightly different discipline. Yes. In a way, I quite liked doing both. It was quite, I think it worked really well because like that's like a sort of snippet of it and they perform in different ways. So you kind of wonder what whose hands those might be or and you get a backstory, which was quite nice. Yeah. So Love tell it. us um, tell us about, you have an exhibition coming up at Christie's. Yes. Uh, and is that that's going to be some of your TLS work, all of your TLS work and, yes. and other things? So it's, a lot of it is TLS because that's... Because <laughs> it's really that. good. <laughs> and it's mostly what I've done because I haven't been working for very long. So like a lot of my... And work. this takes you too long to do this, so you can't do anything else. <laughs> well, it's a good thing. Um, yeah. But then also I've done some work for The Guardian starting in my second year of university. Because you are not old, are you, Ella? No, I'm standards. 23. So yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I started for The Guardian then and then I did a project every year, every summer. Um, for them first one was about uh, refugees second one was about sort of looking at mental health how you represent art and then the most recent one was in collaboration with Maison Saint Frontier and I uh, went to Lebanon briefly and worked with their counsellors on sort of trauma counselling and counselling refugees who've been like victims of like sexual assault and the idea was to draw things that would be sort of useful in their counselling sessions as kind of like uh, therapeutic tools but also just trying to unpack these issues for people to understand so there's a kind of sort of mental health internal dilemmas some of those drawings and then there's yours as well and they came together oh, interestingly yeah. on Rebecca piece, Watson's which you commissioned piece. didn't you yeah Rebecca Watson's piece all about well it was a review of um, the Jermaine Greer polemic on rape and Roxane Gay's book and a couple of there were a couple of other other books on the topic of rape essentially and, and we and you created this absolutely stunning cover which was no easy feet given the sensitivity of the materials and as you said I remember you put it so well you said how difficult it was to find images and visual metaphors that aren't hackneyed and offensive to someone it's such a sensitive area it was interesting because cartoons and covers like I'd drawn a lot of complicated messy drawings about this topic because it is the right way to I think draw about it because it is many multifaceted and complicated but then because as you say covers have to be clean and simple in some ways and clear-cut trying to extract an idea that was that from the complications was an interesting challenge but it was good to be able to bring the experience I had to that particular commission for me. Uh, Tell us about literary dreams, dream diaries that you did. So we now sometimes, which I'm sure is a massive pain for you, do full page cartoons. Oh no, it's great they like so much space. Which is big, (laughs) it's a lot of space. So just people know that you can get 1800 words on a TLS page. Yeah. Uh, So it's a big old space for a cartoon and the literary dreams is basically a series of references to dreams in literature which are then illustrated and you can guess them i mean there's there's anna karenina there's kafka's metamorphoses there's cheshire cat cheshire cat alice in wonderland what's the shakespeare is it uh, uh Tem- Midsummer Night- Mid- Midsummer- no, no, no tempest, tempest sorry yeah, tempest. <laughs> i'm thinking dreams Midsummer Night's dreams, yeah. but i went didn't do that in the you end. didn't do that one yeah no well i, li- I like the the globe that spins into the yeah. Just went with that so one. how do you go about? I mean, <laughs> um, how do you draw something like this? Because it's very, it's very complicated, very intricate. At the beginning, I was thinking like sort of dreams are episodic and fragmented, and you sort of bounce between different elements, and that very much suits a comic because you have a different panels and you move between them. So that was sort of the idea that like they'd be different moments, but then they, I liked when they like twisted together or one image turned into another. So we've got the skull that turned into a kiss, which turns into the wine glass for the next thing, which like goes into Kathy. So like, I, I wanted it to have some sense of like flow in a way, because in a dream you, you kind of like your one moment and then you're like the next. And I wanted that to come across. In terms of actually drawing it, well, that one, 
I did it. I did it actually do it in order because, like, I've done another full page comic one and I did the separate panels and then I like put them all together. Like, I like composed it separately, but I wanted this one for it to work like on a macro and micro scale. So I wanted you to be able to like look at an individual picture and see an individual picture. But then it also I wanted the whole thing to fit together as like a whole composition. So I came up with like the sleeper in the middle who sort of ties it together because he's having all the dreams. And then I kind of liked the fact that at the end you get back to this kind of tiny image of the actual TLS page because that's what almost, in, that you could say like that inspired the dream. So it's kind of like the different levels. Or a maybe. nightmare. Or a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> There's no need for that, is there? Do you draw draw this in pen or are you drawing on a computer? A bit of both. So uh, sort of biro sketches to start and then I draw with a stylus, which is like what I've done most of my life, really. Uh, People often ask like how much you think digital medium has like shaped your style. But like because most of my style was like born out of stylus, it's just like doesn't really... I can't really tell like it feels really natural mostly because I draw negatively so like often I'll have a black canvas or I'll like have a black brush strokes and then I'll like carve the white light out of it so that's something that is really hard to do you can't get clean Mm. sharp lines like that in real life like normally when you draw you have a white page and you put black on it because that's that's what works in real life you can't it's quite hard to put light on dark but when I because digitals don't have that constraint like I'll make a black space either a black canvas or I'll create a black shape like if I draw a limb I'll draw the limb in black and then I'll draw the white I'll carve out the light on top of it that's interesting it's a bit weird but I think maybe like some of my drawings if they're dark it's like and they have the light comes across differently because yeah, no, I, I can in see, that way. you have a style I mean just definitely we but, know your style but not deliberately that's just that's how I how I draw things it's not like I'm like I'm going to do my style now it's just how I how it fits so tell us when's the exhibition so it's 5th to 10th April and then on the 8th at 6 to 8 30 I'm sort of there and it's a bit of an open house evening and you can hear me talk even more about my cartoons <laughs> if you want to are you looking forward to doing that, that aspect yeah, of it yeah uh, Yes, it'll be a nice <laughs> challenge. That's one way of saying it. And people can buy your stuff there? They can, and online. And online. And in fact, in the TLS shop shortly. Yes. We're going to start selling that. Not exciting. You know, cap- capitalism. There you yes. go. That's what we're all about. Uh, Ella Brand, <laughs> thank, thank you so much. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to David Roby, Richard Forty, and Ella Barron. Make sure you buy the paper, A Celebration of European Culture, this week of all weeks. Make a stand for shared cultural values. Deirdre, I remember actually, because I was here when Brexit happened, and I came in early and you were one of the first yeah, people in. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. And you were, in, you were in tears. It was all, I mean, it was this moment you were like, yeah. I can't really believe this is happening. Yeah. And it still hasn't happened. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, 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 I'm, trying to, I'm trying to cheer you up. I think, it, I think it will though, which is enough to bring on the tears again. Yeah. <laughs> but next week, it's a hundred years, we're staying in Europe actually, since the founding of Bauhaus. If that means nothing to you, we'll try and explain it all. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.